From Olympic Media, I'm Sonali Silva. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with thoracic transplant specialist and expert in lung fibrosis, Professor Dan Chambers, about the alarming new silicosis epidemic affecting stonemasons exposed to toxic silica dust as a result of cutting manufactured stone. The incurable respiratory disease is said to now be at epidemic levels in Australia, with young tradespeople either dying or acquiring lung transplants. Professor Chambers, who's been working with patients diagnosed with the condition, said he began to realise the extent of the problem when he began seeing dozens of stonemasons in Queensland diagnosed with silicosis, which triggered an audit of the nation's manufacturing stone industry. Knowing many more young men would need help, he began investigating an established technique, lung lavage, as a potential treatment. Dan, good morning. Thank you so much for your time today. Great to have you on our podcast. Dan, I wonder if we could start by talking about how you began looking at lung lavage as a potential treatment for silicosis. Yeah, so thanks, Sonali, and great to be with you. Uh, So just a little bit of background. So um, silicosis obviously is a disease that's been uh, around for thousands of years and has largely affected uh, minors in the past. But the problem, um, which is uh, acute in Australia at the moment, and indeed other developed countries around the world, is exposure to uh, very fine silica particles through cutting engineered stone bench tops, and so these are the bench tops that many people will have in their kitchens and bathrooms. Came into Australia as a product in the early 2000s, um, and was only recognised actually as as causing a big problem here. Perhaps you know about four or five years ago is when the first case report started to come out. So I first became aware of 2018 um, when we started to identify cases, particularly on the Gold Coast um, in Queensland likely related to you know the very intense um, production facilities down there um, in the high-rise buildings Uh, so it's been a bit of a hot spot. Um, I was really alarmed actually when I first saw some of these patients and and some of their CT scans and you know how rapidly um, this disease progresses. Uh, So we said about so I've got a background in lung fibrosis, pulmonary fibrosis, lung transplantation uh, and have a, an on-site laboratory here, so very much in the translational space. So we set about um, applying the sort of techniques that are available to um, you know, modern research tools to this problem to understand it in more detail. And I guess one of the fundamental questions was, obviously, this disease is related to inhaling a particulate matter. And the, the key question was, how does that translate into causing lung disease and particularly lung fibrosis? Uh, so coming to your question about whole lung lavage and how we got there, so probably the key moment was when we recognised that uh, particulate matter, um, which these guys have been inhaling, uh, is all silicon dioxide when we subjected it to electron microscopy and interrogated the molecular structure uh, with a few metallic um, uh, impurities as well. But further, that that crystal is phagocytosed by macrophages universally when it's first inhaled. So we, we were doing a lot of work with uh, bronchoalveolar lavage and sampling lung fluid that way. And what we found was that there was no phagocytosed by macrophages. And uh, the second key observation was that uh, that crystal was then obviously indigestible and was oxidising, highly oxidising, and... Uh, was oxidising protein uh, inside the macrophages, so they become engorged with um, indigestible oxidised protein. Um, huge um, cells we were finding full of uh, crystal matter and um, and protein. 
And then the final key observation was that we found that that, that engorgement with macrophages, those impacted macrophages, explained the, the radiologic findings that we were seeing in these uh, young guys on CT. Uh, so, so pretty homogeneous. I don't know if any viewers have seen some of these workers yet, but a pretty homogeneous disease, which uh, almost universally starts with centrilobular ground glass nodularity in the right upper lobe on um, uh, CT, and then eventually spreads to the left side as well and then progresses downwards and then eventually causes reticulation, more confluent fibrosis and progressive massive fibrosis. But the inciting event are these centrilobular ground glass nodules, which in fact are, you know, are alveolar spaces that are full of uh, engorged macrophages with crystalline oxidized protein. Uh, from our work in bronchoscopy and, and BAL, we, we found that uh, those cells were indeed amenable to debulking through you know, what was essentially a small lavage procedure through uh, bronchoscopy. And so it was that observation plus case reports of uh, previous use of whole lung lavage uh, to treat uh, silicoproteinosis, which is a related condition, and of course a, a long-standing experience with whole lung lavage for alveolar proteinosis uh, that led us to formalise a program of, of whole lung lavage for this modern form of silicosis. Dan, I understand that you and your team have now treated six patients diagnosed with silicosis. Can you tell us a bit more about their characteristics and uh, how they responded to treatment? Sure. So um, because of those, those observations, uh, you know, over about 18-month period that led us up to um, initiating a whole lung lavage program, we were confident that uh, the, the group of workers that we should be targeting are those with the central lobular ground glass nodularity, which is the you know impacted alveolar spaces full of these macrophages. Um, we knew, of course, that um, areas of fibrosis were not going to be um, improved by simply um, wash debulking the alveolar space. Um, and so we were specifically targeting workers who had either no fibrosis and just the extent of centrilobular ground glass opacification or minimal fibrosis. And so that's that's the group of workers that we've been targeting. The key objectives with when we initiated the program were first of all, of course, to demonstrate feasibility of doing this in this, this group of young men. And secondary, secondarily, uh, the safety of doing this um, in a group of young men. Um, of course, you know, our, our, our centre here in Brisbane, as, as many centres have around Australia, has a long-standing uh, track record with... Um, whole lung lavage for alveolar proteinosis. So yeah, we were very confident that this would both be feasible and safe. Um, of course, what this meant because of the volume of cases, it meant that we were going to be doing a whole lot more whole lung lavage than we'd ever done before. We, we were typically doing two to four whole lung lavages per year at Prince Charles Hospital in Brisbane. So it meant upskilling a whole group of individuals from the sort of core team who were very experienced in the procedure uh, to training other uh, cardiothoracic anaesthetists, perfusionists, physiotherapists, etc., um, in the procedure. So we've treated six young men. Uh, they're all young men, actually, uh, these, these people. Um, so that's 12 lungs. Uh, we had to have a brief break for COVID. So we, we treated the first uh, patient and done his left lung uh, when uh, we all elective and semi-elective surgery was suspended um, due to COVID. Uh, we were able to recommence a couple of months later and have, have since then completed 11 procedures. Uh, so um, we keep people overnight. Um, there's always a little bit of pulmonary edema post-procedure because um, although we, we put in about 25 litres and we take out almost 25 litres, you don't get the entire 25 litres back. There's always a couple of hundred mils left. Uh, so there's a little bit of pulmonary edema, which is just reabsorbed, not a big deal. 
and uh, you know very safe so we haven't had any significant um, adverse events um, some of the workers um, many of these guys of course we're targeting a group who are quite early in their disease course and uh, you know I guess that's the other opportunity here that the screening programs which have been highly effective in Queensland and now in Victoria um, identify these guys when they have very early disease where there's actually very little uh, lung fibrosis so there is this opportunity to intervene take advantage of the extensive screening program and intervene to preserve lung architecture and I guess that's our, our main uh, objective. Um, of course it goes without saying that this is not a substitute for a safe work practice and the key to halting the epidemic is to improve work practice. Um, you know, so I guess that goes without saying and very obvious to your audience, but we were conscious that although that's incredibly important, there was still a group of a couple of hundred young men in Queensland who needed our help. And that's, uh, that's what we set about doing. Um, the job is only, you know, it's not even half done. Uh, we, it's an important milestone to demonstrate the feasibility and the safety of this approach. And indeed, uh, you know, we've demonstrated very marked improvement in the CT appearance, which is pleasing. Um, but of course, what we want to achieve is to make a big difference uh, for these guys in terms of their quality of life, longevity, uh, morbidity. And so the, the next objective is to collaborate with the other centres in Australia who will be commencing this program soon um, so that we uh, retain a registry of workers who have undergone whole lung lavage and compare it to what the natural history is uh, for this condition. Dan, and what are the risks associated with the procedure? So the, the procedure is well established, and I'm sure many of your many of your viewers will have um, either done this themselves or, or have looked after a patient. Um, so the risks are very well established as well. So the key thing is obviously uh, this involves ventilating one lung while we lavage the other lung with a, a double lumen tube. So the, the key thing, of course, is to ensure that um, we have effective lung isolation. And so uh, we do that under direct vision actually now uh, with continuous direct vision of the, um, the double lumen tube to ensure that we're isolating lungs appropriately. Um, so that's a theoretical risk if we don't um, isolate the lungs. You know, I think in practice it's highly unlikely that um, you're going to get much spillover with modern um, anaesthetic tools. Um, the other risk, which is certainly well known, are pneumothorax pleural effusion um, because the, the, the fluid is um, uh, drained in under a certain head of pressure. Um, and then uh, we haven't seen any of that, um, you know, at this point after our 12 procedures, but um, well-known risk, obviously, of um, pulmonary edema post-procedure, uh, which is not, not so much a risk, it's an inevitable thing. There's always going to be some, some fluid left behind, so you need to be ready to support um, the person. Um, you know, we, we were obviously targeting people who have very early disease, actually reasonably normal lung function, not, not far off normal, some minor restrictive abnormalities and minor diffusing capacity abnormalities, certainly not very severe disease. So we were very confident that these guys would tolerate the procedure without any difficulty. Uh, they're certainly much, much more well than many of our patients with alveolar proteinosis when we do the procedure for them. Um, we use a vibrating vest uh, to help um, distribute fluid um, uh, homogeneously around the lung and that, that vest uh, sometimes can leave a bit of bruising um, on the chest wall. All of these pretty minor um, side effects. Everybody's gone home the next day. Thanks, Dan. Um, now, how much of the silica load are you able to remove here? Will this be a one-time procedure? Um, that's what we're planning at the moment, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, uh, alveolar proteinosis often requires multiple lavages. The other thing we've done alongside this is to develop a new methodology to um, quantitatively assess um, 
silica burden in the alveolar space in bronchoalveolar lavage fluids. So that, that test is actually uh, proven to be highly, um, uh, very, 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 very helpful in terms of making a diagnosis of silicosis, for example, in a worker who, or someone who you think might have sarcoidosis or silicosis, uh, that test has proved um, uh, very, very accurate. Um, but we, we've also been using it to assess the response to lavage. So have we actually removed the foreign body that we set out to remove? And uh, we know that from the, the work that we've done so far that we reduced the silica load um, by about something like 16 fold and with the whole lung lavage procedure. But it hasn't gone back to normal um, in the workers that we've um, lavaged so far. Um, so there is an opportunity um, if need be to repeat the procedure. Um, I suspect that may well not be the case. I think there'll be a, a threshold silica exposure which can be dealt with through normal uh, macrophage clearing clearance mechanisms to mediastinal lymph nodes. Um, it's just that these workers have had such a massive exposure uh, that that, that um, reticuloendothelial system has been overwhelmed. A little bit of a helping hand, but uh, you know we stand ready to to repeat this procedure if we think it's necessary. Um, in any young man, certainly haven't gone there um, as yet. Um, so very pleasing to see the the improvements in CT score that we've seen so far. Uh, you know, very conscious that we need to follow these people up long term to demonstrate that this translates into a much better long term uh, outcome in terms of lung function and mortality and morbidity. Um, and I guess, you know, the holy grail would be to conduct a randomised controlled trial um, of uh, whole lung lavage. Um, we are actually considering doing that, should we, we put in some achieve that. Um, of course, it's a big undertaking when you, when you power studies like that. Uh, you need to power them, um, you know, for relevant outcome measures. I think extremely difficult to power for lung function outcomes but we certainly can power it for CT outcomes and that's what we've, that, that, that's our objective. Um, if we are successful with that funding is to conduct a randomised controlled trial um, rapidly so that we are able to treat workers who are randomised to no treatment so that nobody misses out. And Dan, have you and your team been able to examine that, that material that comes out of the lung to get more of an understanding about how the silica crystals go on to affect disease progression? You can get really forensic about this. So, you know, what we've seen is that um, the, the crystal um, is pretty homogeneous, but there are subtle differences and we've been able to see differences between workers who have been in different factories and even similar changes in workers who've been in the same factory uh, in terms of the, the crystal size, structure, um, and uh, chemical composition. So, you know, some of the impurities um, with uh, aluminium or iron appear to be very dependent on exactly what product was being cut and how it was being cut. And so, uh, you know, there is an opportunity to get very forensic about it. It's like a crime scene that we've been investigating. That's incredible. I mean, we look forward to covering the details that will emerge from those investigations. Dan, how do, uh, how will people access this kind of treatment? Um, what would be the process? Uh, so it didn't occur to me actually when this went into the media um, last week that of course the phones would start ringing hot um, the following day. So we have had a lot of inquiries, you know, many of them very appropriate, but some obviously people who are, who are looking for some sort of treatment for a completely different lung disease. Um, and so what we've done there is ask them to be referred by their GP so that they can be appropriately assessed. Um, I know my colleagues in Sydney and Melbourne will soon be commencing their own whole lung lavage programs and they also have um, excellent pathways to assessment by um, highly skilled 
um, clinicians who'll be able to work out whether this is an appropriate avenue for a particular person or not. And so um, I guess the main message is um, need to be assessed um, and, and, you know, starts with GP referral. And what about globally? For our listeners in the UK, uh, would you know if there are plans to roll out a similar program over there? The thing about this disease is um, this product is, you know, everywhere and the the disease appears to be quite homogeneous in fact you know quite startlingly so so um i would imagine that uk workers are, are affected exactly the same way as australian workers i don't see that there are going to be big differences in in terms of um, what this disease will look like um so specifically you know what's the pathogenesis what does the ct look like how does it progress um so i would think that you know the the uh, what we've done here would be um, applicable anywhere in the world, um, really, and I'm delighted to to speak to any UK colleagues and, and collaborate. I think uh, the more the more information we can get um, about outcomes following this procedure, um, the better place we are. Dan, how long do people have once exposed to the toxic dust to be screened and have a treatment like this performed before long-term irreversible damage sets in? Uh, yeah, look, so there is time here. Uh, the In terms of the kind of exposure that will lead to disease, I think the earliest I've seen, I've seen probably about 80 um, workers in Queensland. Um, the earliest uh, or the shortest period of exposure I've seen was about three years of working in a, in a really um, heavily um, contaminated environment. Um, but most of these guys have been in the industry for sort of five to 15 years. Um, the product only came into Australia in early 2000, so there's nobody who's had more than about 18 years of exposure. Um, so it's that kind of time frame to develop disease, sort of five to 10 years, so much shorter. Um, and then in terms of how quickly do we need to treat? So um, we've certainly seen progression over a year or thereabouts, um, but it's it's reasonably subtle. So it's, it's lung function decline, um, a little bit of symptomatic deterioration. Equally, there's no impairment or certain weeks. Uh, so we've got that little bit of time. And that was a balancing act that myself and my collaborators uh, were grappling with when we were discussing how we might be able to conduct a randomised controlled trial to, to get really good evidence about whether this uh, treatment is effective or not. We were conscious that the treatment effect we've seen so far in terms of CT scan is huge. And so therefore, um, we, we suspected that people may not want to be randomised to a no treatment arm. Uh, so we feel that we could probably conduct a randomised controlled trial which is adequately powered for CT outcomes within six months. And we were comfortable that um, people who are randomised to the no treatment arm it would be okay if we, if we left them for six months. So I think 12 months is a bit of a stretch. I think you're going to start to get some... Uh, some uh, crystal and cells incorporated into lung interstitium and therefore not accessible to lavage and you're going to start to get um, uh, pro-fibrotic and uh, pro-inflammatory signals really being pumped out to start to cause lung destruction if you leave things much longer than that. But that's speculation. We don't have that, um, that evidence at this point. Dan, you've seen the devastating impact of this preventable condition. Um, we know from the national audits that there's potentially hundreds more people exposed. What's it been like for you seeing this first group of people respond to treatment the way they you have? Know, this is a really good example of uh, 
how you can apply um, science to a, a, a disease and understand it in depth um, and then not just come up with empiric treatments but come up with treatments that um, are, are founded on a you know, well-understood pathogenesis and expectation of um, really good outcome. Um, and I think you can do that to a potentially effective treatment or at least, at least major milestone in terms of achieving a treatment within two years, which I'm delighted with. Dan, congratulations to you and the team. It's a major development for thousands of workers exposed to this toxic substance. I know you've said there's still a lot more to do. Uh, what's next? I should give a shout out to um, the Prince Charles Hospital Foundation, uh, the Common Good um, charity. So uh, all in every single of funding for this research so far has come from the Common Good charity. So if, if any of your viewers or, or uh, their, their friends or relatives or anybody um, feels passionate about this problem, I'd urge you to go online, find the Common Good and make a donation. 100% of that money finds its way to, uh, to research and you can specify um, that you, you want uh, to, to help silicosis research. Um, and that our next objective is to do that molecular work to demonstrate that this really um, reverts back to normal and also to conduct the randomised controlled trial of um, whole lung lavage and thirdly to um, undertake further discovery to be able to help workers who already have lung fibrosis and progressive massive fibrosis who may be facing either death or lung transplant without further treatments. Um, so, you know, urge, urge your viewers to go online and, and have a look for Common Good. Professor Dan Chambers there from Prince Charles Hospital in Queensland. And from the Limbic, I'm Sonali Silva. Thanks so much for your time. I hope you'll join me on the next podcast. <laughs>